Hey, this is Pastor Doug, and you have made it to our Christmas stories. We are going to be telling a different Christmas story every day of December up until Christmas. I love Christmas stories, and this is the best way I can think of to get into the Christmas spirit. Good to have you with us. Today, we begin a story by Kate Douglas Wiggin. This is called The Bird's Christmas Carol. This was a very beloved story when I was growing up, and as our family, we would read it most Christmases. It begins to the three dearest children in the world, Bertha, Lucy, and Horatio. Chapter One, The Bird's Christmas Carol. A little snowbird. It was very early Christmas morning, and in the stillness of the dawn, with the soft snow falling on the housetops, a little child was born in the bird household. They had intended to name the baby Lucy if it were a girl, but they had not expected her on Christmas morning, and a real Christmas baby was not to be lightly named. The whole family agreed in that. They were consulting about it in the nursery. Mr. Bird said that he had assisted in naming the three boys and that he should leave this matter entirely to Mrs. Bird. Donald wanted the child called Dorothy after a pretty curly-haired girl who sat next to him in school. Paul chose Luella, for, to, for Luella was the nurse who had been with him during his whole babyhood up to the time of his first trousers, and the name suggested all sorts of comfortable things. Uncle Jack said that the first girl should always be named for her mother, no matter, no matter how hideous the name happened to be, and Grandma said that she would prefer not to take any part in the discussion, and everybody suddenly remembered that Mrs. Bird had thought of naming the baby Lucy for Grandma herself, and while it would be indelicate for her to favor that name, it would be against human nature for her to suggest any other under the circumstances. Hugh, the hitherto baby, if that is a possible term, sat in one corner and said nothing, but felt in some mysterious way that his nose was out of joint, for there was a newer baby now, a possibility he had never taken into consideration, and the first girl too, a still higher development of treason, which made him actually green with jealousy. But it was too profound a subject to be settled then and there, on the spot. Besides, Mama had not been asked, and everybody felt it rather absurd, after all, to forestall a decree that was certain to be absolutely wise, just, and perfect. The reason that the subject had been brought up at all so early in the day lay in the fact that Mrs. Bird never allowed her babies to go overnight unnamed. She was a person of such great decision of character that she would have blushed at such a thing. She said that to let blessed babies go dangling and dawdling about without names for months and months was enough to ruin them for life. She also said that if one could not make up one's mind in 24 hours, it was a sign that, but I will not repeat the rest, as it might prejudice you against the most charming woman in the world. So Donald, 
took his new velocipede and went out to ride up and down the stone pavement and notch the shins of innocent people as they passed by, while Paul spun his musical top on the front steps. But Hugh refused to leave the scene of action. He seated himself on the top stair in the hall, banging his head against the railings a few times just by way of uncorking the vials of his wrath, and then subsided into gloomy silence, waiting to declare war if more first girl babies were thrust upon a family already surfeited with that unnecessary article. Meanwhile, dear Mrs. Bird lay in her room, weak but safe and happy, with her sweet girl baby by her side. And the heaven of motherhood opening again before her. Nurse was making gruel in the kitchen and the room was dim and quiet. There was a cheerful open fire in the grate. But though the shutters were closed, the side windows that looked out on the church of our Savior next door were a little open. Suddenly, a sound of music poured into the bright air and drifted into the chamber. It was the boy choir singing Christmas anthems. Higher and higher rose the clear, fresh voices full of hope and cheer as children's voices always are. Fuller and fuller grew the burst of melody as one glad strain fell upon another in joyful harmony. Carol, brothers, carol. Carol joyfully. Carol the good tidings. Carol merrily. And pray a gladsome Christmas for all your fellow men. Carol, brothers, carol, Christmas Day again. One verse followed another, always with the same sweet refrain. And pray a gladsome Christmas for all your fellow men. Carol, brothers, carol, Christmas Day again. Mrs. Bird thought as the music floated in upon her gentle sleep, that she had slipped into heaven with her new baby, and that the angels were biting them welcome. But the tiny bundle by her side stirred a little, and though it was scarcely more than the ruffling of a feather, she awoke, for her mother ear is so close to the heart that it can hear the faintest whisper of a child. She opened her eyes and drew the baby closer. It looked like a rose dipped in milk. She thought this pink and white blossom of girlhood, or like a pink cherub with its halo of pale yellow hair, finer than floss silk. Carol, brothers, carol. Carol joyfully. Carol the good tidings. Carol merrily. The voices were brimming over with joy. Why, my baby, whispered Mrs. Bird in a soft surprise. I had forgotten what day it was. You are a little Christmas child, and we will name you Carol. Mother's Christmas Carol. What? said Mr. Bird, coming in softly and closing the door behind him. Why, Donald, don't you think Carol is a sweet name for a Christmas baby? It came to me. Just a moment ago, in the singing, as I was lying here, half asleep and half awake. I think it is a charming name, dear heart, and sounds just like you. And I hope that, 
being a girl, this baby has some chance of being as lovely as her mother. At which speech from the baby's papa, Mrs. Bird, though she was as weak and tired as she could be, blushed with happiness. And so Carol came by her name. Of course, it was thought foolish by many people, though Uncle Jack declared laughingly that it was very strange if a whole family of birds could not be indulged in a single carol. And Grandma, who adored the child, thought the name much more appropriate than Lucy, but was glad that people would probably think it short for Caroline. Perhaps because she was born in holiday time, Carol was a very happy baby. Of course, she was too tiny to understand the joy of Christmastide, but people say there is everything in a good beginning, and she may have breathed in unconsciously the fragrance of evergreens and holiday dinners. While the peals of sleigh bells and the laughter of happy children may have fallen upon her baby ears and wakened in them a glad surprise at the merry world she had come to live in. Her cheeks and lips were as red as holly berries. Her hair was for all the world the color of a Christmas candle flame. Her eyes were bright as stars. Her laugh like a chime of Christmas bells and her tiny hands forever outstretched in giving. Such a generous little creature you never saw. A spoonful of bread and milk had always to be taken by mama or nurse before Carol could enjoy her supper. Whatever bit of cake or sweetmeat found its way into her pretty fingers was straightaway broken in half to be shared with Donald, Paul, or Hugh. And when they made believe nibble the morsel with affected enjoyment, she would clap her hands and crow with delight. Why does she do it? asked Donald thoughtfully. None of us boys ever did. I hardly know, said Mama, catching her darling to her heart, except that she is a little Christmas child. And so she has a tiny share of the blessedest birthday the world ever knew. Here we begin chapter two of The Bird's Christmas Carol, Drooping Wings. It was December, 10 years later. Carol had seen nine Christmas trees lighted on her birthdays, one after another. Nine times she had assisted in the holiday festivities of the household, though in her babyhood her share of the gaieties was somewhat limited. For five years, certainly, she had hidden presents for Mama and Papa in their own bureau drawers and harbored a number of secrets sufficiently large to burst a baby brain. Had it not been for the relief gained by whispering them all to Mama at night when she was in her crib, a proceeding which did not in the least lessen the value of a secret in her innocent mind. For five years she had heard "'Twas the night before Christmas,' and hung up a scarlet stocking, many sizes too large for her, and pinned a sprig of holly on her little white nightgown to show Santa Claus that she was a truly Christmas child. 
and dreamed of fur-coated saints and toy packs and reindeers and wished everybody a Merry Christmas before it was light in the morning and lent every one of her new toys to the neighbor's children before noon and eaten turkey and plum pudding and gone to bed at night in a trance of happiness at the day's pleasures. Donald was away at college now. Paul and Hugh were great manly fellows, taller than their mother. Papa Bird had gray hairs in his whiskers, and Grandma, God bless her, had been four Christmases in heaven. But Christmas in the bird's nest was scarcely as merry now as it used to be in the bygone years. For the little child that once brought such an added blessing to the day lay month after month a patient, helpless invalid in the room where she was born. She had never been very strong in body and it was with a pang of terror her mother and father noticed soon after she was five years old that she began to limp ever so slightly to complain too often of weariness and to nestle close to her mother saying, she would rather not go out to play, please. The illness was slight at first and hope was always stirring in Mrs. Bird's heart. Carol would feel stronger in the summertime or she would be better when she had spent a year in the country or she would outgrow it or they would try a new physician, but by and by it came to be all too sure that no physician, save one, could make Carol strong again. And that no summertime, nor country air, unless it were the everlasting summertime in a heavenly country, could bring the little girl to health. The cheeks and lips that once were as red as holly berries faded to faint pink. The starlight eyes grew softer, for they often gleamed through tears and the gay child laugh that had been like a chime of Christmas bells gave place to a smile so lovely, so touching, so tender and patient that it filled every corner of the house with the gentle radiance that might have come from the face of the Christ child himself. Love could do nothing. And when we have said that, we have said it all. For it is stronger than anything else in the whole wide world. Mr. and Mrs. Bird were talking it over one evening when all the children were asleep. A famous physician had visited them that day and told them that sometime, it might be in one year, it might be in more, Carol would slip quietly off into heaven whence she came. It is no use to close our eyes to it any longer, said Mr. Bird as he paced up and down the library floor. Carol will never be well again. It almost seems as if I could not bear it when I think of that loveliest child doomed to lie there day after day and what is still more to suffer pain that we are helpless to keep away from her. Merry Christmas indeed. It gets to be the saddest day in the year to me. And poor Mr. Bird sank into a chair by the table, buried his face in his hands to keep his wife from seeing the tears that would come in spite of all his efforts. 
But, but Donald, dear, said sweet Mrs. Bird with trembling voice, Christmas Day may not be so merry with us as it used to be, but it is very happy, and that is better, and very blessed, and that is better yet. I suffer chiefly for Carol's sake, but I have almost given up being sorrowful for my own. I am too happy in the child, and I see too cheery what she has done for us and for the other children. Donald and Paul and Hugh were three strong, willful, boisterous boys. But now, you seldom see such tenderness, devotion, thought for others, and self-denial in lads of their years. A quarrel, a hot word, is almost unknown in this house. And why? Because Carol would hear it, and it would distress her. She is so full of love and goodness. The boys study with all their might and main. Why? Partly, at least, because they like to teach Carol and amuse her by telling her what they read. When the seamstress comes, she likes to sew in Miss Carol's room because there she forgets her own troubles, which heaven knows are sore enough. And as for me, Donald, I am a better woman every day for Carol's sake. I have to be her eyes, her ears, her feet, her hands, her strength, her hope. And she, my own little child, is my example. I was wrong, dear heart, said Mr. Bird, more cheerfully. We will not, we will try not to repine, but to rejoice instead that we have an angel of the house. And as for her future, Mrs. Bird went on, I think we need not be over-anxious. I feel as if she did not belong altogether to us, but that when she has done what God sent her for, he will take her back to himself. And it may not be very long. And here, it was poor Mrs. Bird's turn to break down and Mr. Bird's turn to comfort her. Chapter 3, The Bird's Nest Carol herself knew nothing of motherly tears and fatherly anxieties. She lived on peacefully in the room where she was born. But you never would have known that room, for Mr. Bird had a great deal of money, and though he felt sometimes, since it could not buy a strong body for his little girl, yet he was glad to make the place she lived in just as beautiful as it could be. 
The room had been extended by the building of a large addition that hung out over the garden below and was so filled with windows that it might have been a conservatory. The ones on the side were thus still nearer the Church of Our Savior than they used to be. Those in front looked out on the beautiful harbor, and those in the back commanded a view of nothing in particular but a narrow alley. Nevertheless, they were pleasantest of all to Carol, for the Ruggles family lived in the alley, and the nine little middle-sized and big Ruggles children were a source of inexhaustible interest. The shutters could all be opened and Carol could take a real sunbath in this lovely glass house. Or they could all be closed when the dear head ached or the dear eyes were tired. The carpet was of soft gray with clusters of green bay and holly leaves. The furniture was of white wood on which an artist had painted snow scenes and Christmas trees and groups of merry children ringing bells and singing carols. Donald had made a pretty polished shelf and screwed it on the outside of the footboard, and the boys always kept this full of blooming plants, which they changed from time to time. The headboard, too, had a bracket on either side, where there were pots of maidenhair ferns. Lovebirds and canaries hung in their golden houses in the windows, and they, poor caged things, could hop as far from their wooden perches as Carol could venture from her little white bed. On one side of the room was a bookcase filled with hundreds, yes, I mean it, with hundreds and hundreds of books, books with gay-colored pictures, books without, books with black and white outline sketches, books with none at all, books with verses, books with stories, books that made children laugh, and some, only a few, that made them cry, books with words of one syllable for tiny boys and girls, and books with words of fearful length to puzzle wise ones. This was Carol's circulating library. Every Saturday, she chose 10 books, jotting their names down in a diary. Into these, she slipped cards that said, please keep this book two weeks and read it with love, Carol Bird. Then Mrs. Bird stepped into her carriage and took the 10 books to the children's hospital and brought home 10 others that she had left there the fortnight before. This was a source of great happiness. For some of the hospital children that were old enough to print or write and were strong enough to do it, wrote Carol sweet little letters about the books, and she answered them, and they grew to be friends. It is very funny, but you do not always have to see people to love them. Just think about it and tell me if it isn't so. There was a high wainscoting of wood about the room, and on top of this in a narrow gilt framework, ran a row of illuminated pictures illustrating fairy tales, all in dull blue and gold and scarlet and ivory and silver. And from the door to the closet, there was the story of the fair one with golden locks. From closet to bookcase ran Puss in Boots. From bookcase to fireplace was Jack the Giant Killer. And on the other side of the room were Hop o' My Thumb, The Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella. Then there was a great closet full of beautiful things to wear, but they were all dressing gowns and slippers and shawls, and there were drawers full of toys and games, but they were as such that you could play with on your lap. There were no nine pins, nor balls, nor bows and arrows, nor bean bags, nor tennis rackets, but after all, other children needed these more than Carol Bird, for she was always happy and contented. Whatever she had, or whatever she lacked. And after the room had been made so lovely for her on eight 
Christmas. She always called herself, in fun, a bird of paradise. On these particular December days, she was happier than usual, for Uncle Jack was coming from England to spend the holidays. Dear, funny, jolly, loving, wise Uncle Jack, who came every two or three years and brought so much joy with him that the world looked as black as a thundercloud for a week after he went away again. The mail had brought this letter. Wish you Merry Christmas, you dearest birdlings in America. Preen your feathers and stretch the bird's nest a trifle, if you please, and let Uncle Jack in for the holidays. I am coming with such a trunk full of treasures that you'll have to borrow the stockings of Barnum's giant and giantess. I am coming to squeeze a certain little ladybird until she cries for mercy. I am coming to see if I can find a boy to take care of a black pony that I've bought lately. It's the strangest thing I ever knew. I've hunted all over Europe and I can't find a boy to suit me. I'll tell you why. I have set my heart on finding one with a dimple in his chin because this pony particularly likes dimples. Hooray, cried Hugh. Bless my dear dimple. I'll never be ashamed of it again. Please drop a note to the clerk of the weather and have a good rousing snowstorm. Say on the 22nd, None of your meek, gentle, nonsensical, silly, shallying snowstorms. Not the sort where the flakes float lazily down from the sky as if they didn't care whether they ever got there or not and then melt away as soon as they touch the earth, but a regular business-like whizzing, whirring, blurring, cutting snowstorm warranted to freeze and stay on. I should like a rather large Christmas tree if it's convenient, not one of those sprigs five or six feet high that you have used to have three or four years ago when the birdlings were not fairly feathered out, but a tree of some size, set it up in the garret if necessary, and then we can cut a hole in the roof if the tree chances to be too high for the room. Tell Bridget to begin to fatten a turkey. Tell her that by the 20th of December, that turkey must not be able to stand on its legs for fatness. And then on the next three days, she must allow it to recline easily on its side and stuff it to bursting. One ounce of stuffing beforehand is worth a pound afterwards. The pudding must be unusually huge and darkly, deeply, lugubriously blue in color. It must be stuck so full of plums that the pudding itself will ooze into the pan and not be brought onto the table at all. I expect to be there by the 20th to manage these little things myself, remembering it is the early bird that catches the worm, but give you these instructions in case I should be delayed. And Carol, Carol must decide on the size of the tree. She knows best. She was a Christmas child. And she, she must plead for the snowstorm. The clerk of the weather may pay some attention to her. And she must look up the boy with the dimple for me. She's likelier to find him than I am. This minute, she must advise about the turkey. And Bridget must bring the pudding to her bedside and let her drop every separate plum into it and stir it once for luck. And I'll not eat a single slice. For Carol, 
is the dearest part of Christmas to Uncle Jack. And he'll have none of it without her. She is better than all the turkeys and puddings and apples and spare ribs and wreaths and garlands and mistletoe and stockings and chimneys and sleigh bells and all of Christendom. She is the very sweetest Christmas carol that was ever written, said, sung, or chanted. And I am coming. I am coming as fast as ships and railway trains can carry me. So tell her so. Carol's joy knew no bounds. Mr. and Mrs. Bird laughed like children. They kissed each other for the sheer delight. And when the boys heard it, they simply whooped like wild Indians until the Ruggles family, whose backyard joined their garden, gathered at the door and wondered what was up in the big house. We've made it to chapter four of A Bird's Christmas Carol. Birds of a feather flock together. Uncle Jack did really come on the 20th. He was not detained by business, nor did he get left behind, nor snowed up, as frequently happens in stories and in real life too, I am afraid. The snowstorm came also, and the turkey nearly died a natural and premature death from overeating. Donald came to Donald with a line of down upon his upper lip and Greek and Latin on his tongue and stories of knowledge in his handsome head and stories, bless me, you couldn't turn over a chip without reminding Donald of something that happened at college. One of the others was always at Carol's bedside for they fancied her paler than she used to be and they could not bear her out of sight. It was Uncle Jack though, who sat beside her in the winter twilights. The room was quiet and almost dark, save for the snow light outside and the flickering flame of the fire that danced over the sleeping beauty's face and touched the fair one's golden locks with readier glory. Carol's hands, all too thin and white these later days, lay close clasped in Uncle Jack's, and they talked together quietly of many, many things. I want to tell you about my plans for Christmas this year, Uncle Jack, said Carol on the first evening of his visit, because it will be the loveliest one I ever had. The boys laugh at me for caring so much about it, but it isn't altogether because it's Christmas, nor because it's my birthday. But long, long ago, when I first began to be ill, I used to think, the first thing when I wake on Christmas morning, today is Christ's birthday and mine. I did not put the words close together, you know, because that made it seem too bold. But I first said Christ's birthday out loud, and then in a minute, softly to myself and mine. Christ's birthday and mine. And so I do not quite feel about Christmas as other girls do. Mama says she supposes that ever so many other children have been born on that day, and I often wonder where they are, Uncle Jack, and whether it is a dear thought to them too, or whether I am so much in bed and so often alone that it means more to me. Oh, I do hope that none of them are poor or cold or hungry, and I wish, I wish they were all as happy as I, because 
They are really my little brothers and sisters. Now, Uncle Jack, dear, I am going to try and make somebody happy every single Christmas that I live. And this year, it is to be the Ruggleses in the rear. <laughs> that large and interesting brood of children in the little house at the end of the back garden. Yes, isn't it nice to see so many together? And Uncle Jack, why... Why do the big families always live in the small houses and the small families in the big houses? We ought to call them the Ruggles children, of course, but Donald began talking of them as the Ruggleses in the rear, and Papa and Mama took it up, and now we, we cannot seem to help it. The house was built for Mr. Carter's coachman, but Mr. Carter lives in Europe, and the gentleman who rents his place for him doesn't care what happens to it, and so this poor family came to live there. And when they first moved in, I used to sit in my window and watch them play in their backyard. They are so strong and jolly and good-natured. And then one day I had a terrible headache, and Donald asked them if they would please not scream quite so loud. And they explained that they were having a game of circus, but that they would change and play deaf and dumb asylum all the afternoon. <laughs> Laughed Uncle Jack. What? An obliging family, to be sure. Yes, we thought it all very funny, and I smiled at them from the window when I was well enough to be up again. And now Sarah Maud comes to her door when the children come home from school, and if Mama nods her head yes, that means Carol is very well. And then you ought to hear the little Ruggleses yell. I believe they try to make so much noise that they can make, but if Mama shakes her head no, they always play at quiet games. And then one day, Carrie, my pet canary, flew out of her cage, and Peter Ruggles caught her and brought her back, and I had him up here in my room to thank him. Is Peter the oldest? No, no, Sarah Maud is the oldest. She helps do the washing, and Peter is the next. He is a dressmaker's boy. And which is the pretty little red-haired girl? That's Kitty. And the fat youngster? Baby Larry and that most freckled one. Oh, now don't laugh, Uncle Jack. That's Peoria. Carol, you are joking. No, really, Uncle dear. She was born in Peoria. That's all. <laughs> oh, and who is the next boy? Oshkosh? No, laughed Carol. The others are Susan and Clement and Eileen and Cornelius. They all look exactly alike, except some of them have more freckles than the others. How did you learn all of their names? Why? I have what I call a window school. It is too cold now, but in warm weather, I am wheeled out on my balcony and the Ruggles climb up and walk along our garden fence and sit down on the roof of our carriage house. And that brings them quite near and I tell them stories. On Thanksgiving day, they came up for a few minutes. It was quite warm at 11 o'clock and we told each other what we had to be thankful for. But they gave such queer answers that Papa had to run away for fear of laughing, and I couldn't understand them very well. Susan was thankful for trunks, of all things in the world. Cornelius for horse cars. Kitty for pork steak. While Clem, who is very quiet, brightened up when I came to him and said he was thankful for his lame puppy. Wasn't that pretty? It, it might teach some of us a lesson, mightn't it, little girl? That's what Mama said. 
Now I'm going to give this whole Christmas to the Ruggleses and Uncle Jack. I earned part of the money myself. You, my bird? How? Well, you see, it could not be my own Christmas if Papa gave me all the money. And I thought to really keep Christ's birthday, I ought to do something of my very own. And so I talked with Mama. Of course, she thought of something lovely. She always does. Mama's head is just brimming over with lovely thoughts. All I have to do is ask and out pops the very one that I need. This thought was to let her write down, just as I told her, a description of how a child lived in her own room for three years and what she did to amuse herself. And we sent it to a magazine and got $25 for it. Just think. Well, well, cried Uncle Jack, my little girl, a real author. And what are you going to do with this wonderful own money of yours? I shall give the nine Ruggleses a grand Christmas dinner here in this very room. That will be Papa's contribution. And afterwards, a beautiful Christmas tree fairly blooming with presents. And that will be my part. For I have another way of adding to my $25 so that I can buy nearly anything that I choose. I should like it very much if you would sit at the head of the table, Uncle Jack, for nobody, nobody could ever be frightened of you, you dearest, dearest, dearest thing that ever was. Mama is going to help us, but Papa and the boys are going to eat together downstairs for fear of making the little Ruggleses shy. And after we've had a merry time with the tree, we can open my window and we'll all listen together to the music at the evening church service if it comes before the children go. I have written a letter to the organist and asked him if I might have the two songs that I like best. Will you see if it is all right? Bird's Nest, December 21st, 1880. Dear Mr. Wilkie, I am the little girl who lives next door to the church and as I seldom go out, the music on practice days and Sundays is one of my greatest pleasures, and I want to know if you can have Carol Brothers Carol on Christmas night, and if the boy who sings My Ain Country so beautifully may please sing that too. I think it is the loveliest thing in the world, but it always makes me cry, doesn't it, you? If it isn't too much trouble, I hope they can sing them both quite early, as after 10 o'clock, I may be asleep. Yours respectfully, Carol Bird. P.S. The reason I like Carol's brother, Carol, is because the choir boys sang it 11 years ago, the morning I was born, and put it into Mama's head to call me Carol. She didn't remember then that my other name would be Bird because she was half asleep and could only think of one thing at a time. Donald says if I had been born on the 4th of July, they would have named me Independence, or if on the 22nd of February, Georgina, or even Cherry, like Cherry and Martin Chuzzlewit. But I like my name and birthday best. Yours truly, Carol Bird. Uncle Jack thought the letter quite right, and did not even smile at her telling the organist so many family items. The days flew by as they always fly in holiday time, and it was Christmas Eve before anybody knew it. The family festival was quiet and very pleasant, but almost overshadowed by the grander preparations for the next day. Carol and Elfrida, her pretty German nurse, had ransacked books 
and introduced so many plans and plays and customs and merrymakings from Germany and Holland and England and a dozen other countries that you would scarcely have known how or where you were keeping Christmas. Even the dog and the cat had enjoyed their celebration under Carol's direction. Each had a tiny table with a lighted candle in the center and a bit of bologna sausage placed very near it, and everybody laughed till their tears stood in their eyes to see Villikins and Dinah struggling to nibble the sausage and at the same time to evade the candle flame. Villikins barked and sniffed and howled in impatience, and after many vain attempts, succeeded in dragging off the prize, though he singed his nose in doing it. Dinah, meanwhile, watched him placidly, her delicate nostrils quivering with expectation, and after all excitement had subsided, walked with dignity to the table, her beautiful gray satin trail sweeping behind her, and calmly, putting up one velvet paw, drew the sausage gently down and walked out of the room without turning a hair, so to speak. Elfrida had scattered handfuls of seed over the snow in the garden that the wild birds might have a comfortable breakfast next morning and had stuffed bundles of dry grass in the fireplace so that the reindeer of Santa Claus could refresh themselves after their long gallop across country. This was really only done for fun, but it pleased Carol. And when after dinner, the whole family had gone to church to see the Christmas decorations, Carol limped out on her slender crutches and with Elfrida's help, placed all the family boots in a row in the upper hall. That was to keep the dear ones from quarreling all through the year. There was Papa's stout top boots, Mama's pretty buttoned shoes next, then Uncle Jack's, Donald's, Paul's, and Hugh's, and at the end of the line, her own little white worsted slippers. Last and sweetest of all, like the children in Austria, she put a lighted candle in her window to guide the dear Christ child, lest he should stumble in the dark night as he passed up the deserted street. This done, she dropped into bed, a rather tired, but very happy Christmas fairy. Chapter 5. Some Other Birds Are Taught to Fly Before the earliest Ruggles could wake up and toot his five-cent tin horn, Mrs. Ruggles was up and stirring about the house, for it was a gala day in the family. Gala day? I should think so. Were not her nine children invited to a dinner party at the great house, and weren't they going to sit down free and equal with the mightiest in the land? She had been preparing for this grand occasion ever since the receipt of Carol Bird's invitation, which, by the way, had been speedily enshrined in an old photograph frame and hung under the looking glass in the most prominent place in the kitchen, where it stared the occasional visitor directly in the eye and made him livid with envy. Bird's Nest, December 17, 1880. Dear Mrs. Ruggles, I am going to have a dinner party on Christmas Day and would like to have all your children come. I want them, everyone, please, from Sarah Maud to baby Lara, Larry. Mama says dinner will be at half past five and the Christmas tree at seven, so you may expect them home at nine o'clock, wishing you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I am yours truly, Carol Bird. 
Breakfast was on the table promptly at seven o'clock, and there was very little of it too, for it was an excellent day for short rations. Though Mrs. Ruggles heaved a sigh as she reflected that the boys with their India rubber stomachs would be just as hungry the day after the dinner party as if they had never had any at all. As soon as the scanty meal was over, she announced the plan of the campaign. Now, Susan, you and Kitty wash up the dishes. And Peter, can't you spread up the beds so I can get to cutting out Larry's new suit? I ain't satisfied with his clothes. And I thought in the night of a way to make him a dress out of my old red plaid shawl. Kind of Scotch style, you know, with the fringe to the bottom. Eilie. You go find the comb and take the snarls out of the fringe. That's a lady. You, little young uns, clear out from underfoot. Clem, you and Con hop into bed with Larry while I wash your underflannins. Twon't take long to dry em. Yes, I know it's bothersome, but you can't go out into society without taking some trouble. And anyhow, I couldn't get round to him last night. Sarah Maud. I think it would be perfectly handsome if you ripped them brass buttons off your uncle's policeman's coat and sewed them in a row up the front of your green skirt. Susan, you must iron out yours and Kitty's aprons in there. And I might, I might near forgetting Puri's stockings. I counted the whole lot last night when I was washing them in there and there ain't but 19 anyhow you fix them. No nine pairs of mates, no how. And I ain't going to have my children wear odd stockings to a dinner company fetched up as I was. Eilie, can't you run out and ask Miss Cullen to lend me a pair of stockings for Peary? And tell her, if she will, Peary will give Jim half her candy when she gets home. Won't you, Peary? Peoria was young and greedy and thought the remedy so out of all proportion to the disease that she set up a deafening howl at the projected bargain, a howl so rebellious and so entirely out of season that her mother started in her direction with a flashing eye and uplifted hand. But she let it fall suddenly, saying, No, I vow I won't lick you Christmas Day. If you drive me crazy, but speak up smart now and say whether you'd rather give Jim Cullen half your candy or go bare-legged to the party. The matter being put so plainly, Peoria collected her faculties, dried her tears, and chose the lesser evil, Clem, having hastened the decision by an affectionate wink that meant he'd go halvesies with her on his candy. That's a lady, cried her mother. Now, you young ones that ain't doing nothing, Play all you want to before noontime, for after you get through eating at 12 o'clock, me and Sarah Maud's going to give you such a washing and combing and dressing as you never had before and never will likely again. And then I'm going to set you down and give you two solid hours training and manners, and it won't be no fooling neither. Hmm. All we've got to do is go eat, grumbled Peter. Well, that's enough, responded his mother. There's more than one way of eating, let me tell you. And you've got a heap to learn about it, Peter Ruggles. Land sakes, I wish you children could see the way I was fetched up to eat. 
I never took a meal of victuals in the kitchen before I married Ruggles. But you can't keep that style with nine young'uns and your pa always off to sea. The big Ruggleses worked so well and the little Ruggleses kept from underfoot so successfully that by one o'clock, nine complete toilets were laid out in complete solemn grandeur on the bed. I say complete, but I do not know whether they would be called so in the best society. The law of compensation had been well applied. He that had necktie had no cuffs. She that had sash had no handkerchief and vice versa, but they all had shoes and a certain amount of clothing such as it was, the outside layer being in every case quite above criticism. Now Sarah Maud, said Mrs. Ruggles, her face shining with excitement. Everything's read up and we can begin. I've got to boiler and a kettle and a pot of hot water. Peter, you go into the back bedroom and I'll take Susan, Kitty, Puri, and Cornelius. And Sarah Maud, you take Clem and Eileen and Larry, one to a time, scrub em and rinse em, or at any rate, get as far as you can with them, and then I'll finish them off while you do yourself. Sarah Maud couldn't have scrubbed with any more decision and force if she had been doing floors, and the little Ruggleses bore it bravely not from natural heroism, but for the joy that was set before them. Not being satisfied, however, with the tone of their complexions and feeling that the number of freckles to the square inch was too many to be tolerated in the highest social circles, she wound up operations by applying a little Bristol brick from the knife board, which served as the proverbial last straw from under which the little Ruggleses issued rather red and raw and out of temper. When the clock struck four, they were all clothed and most of them in their right minds, ready for those last touches that always take the most time. Kitty's red hair was curled in 34 ringlets. Sarah Maud's was braided in one pigtail, and Susan and Eileen's in two braids apiece, while Peoria's resisted all advances in the shape of hair oils and stuck out straight on all sides, like that of the Circassian girls of the circus, so Clem said, and he was sent into the bedroom for it, too, from whence he was dragged out forgivingly by Peoria herself five minutes later. Then, exciting moment came linen collars for some and neckties and bows for others. A magnificent green glass breastpin was sewed into Peter's purple necktie and Eureka, the Ruggleses were dressed and Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. A row of seats was then formed directly through the middle of the kitchen. Of course, there were not quite chairs enough for 10 since the family had rarely wanted to sit down all at once somebody always being out or in bed or otherwise engaged, but the wood box and the coal hod finished out the line nicely and nobody thought of grumbling. The children took their places according to age, Sarah Maud at the head and Larry on the coal hod, and Mrs. Ruggles seated herself in front, surveying them proudly as she wiped the sweat of honest toil from her brow. Well, she exclaimed. If I do, if I do say so, I shouldn't. I never see a cleaner, more stylish mess of children in my life. I do wish Ruggles could look at ye for a minute. Larry Ruggles, how many times have I got to tell you not to keep pulling at your sash? 
Haven't I told you, if it comes untied, your waist and skirt'll part company in the middle, and then where'll you be? Now, look me in the eye, all of you. I've often told you what kind of a family the McGrills was. I've got reason to be proud, goodness knows. Your uncle is on the police force of New York City. You can take up the paper most any day and see his name printed right out, James McGrill. And I can't have my children fetched up common like some folks. When they go out, they've got to have clothes and learn to act decent. Now, I want to see how you're going to behave when you get there tonight. Taint so awful easy as you think it is. Let's start in the beginning and act out the whole business. Pile into the bedroom there, every last one of you, and show me how you're going to go into the parlor. This'll be the parlor, and I'll be Miss Bird. The youngsters hustled into the next room in high glee, and Mrs. Ruggles drew herself up in the chair with an infinitely haughty and purse-proud expression that much better suited a descendant of the McGrills than modest Mrs. Bird. The bedroom was small, and there presently ensued such a clatter that you would have thought a herd of wild cattle had broken loose. The door opened, and they struggled in, all the younger ones giggling with Sarah Maud at the head, looking as if she'd been caught in the act of stealing sheep, while Larry, being last in line, seemed to think the door a sort of gate of heaven which would be shut in his face if he didn't get there in time. Accordingly, he struggled ahead of his elders and disgraced himself by tumbling in head foremost. Mrs. Ruggles looked severe. There, I knew you'd do it in some such fool way. Now, go in there and try it over again, every last one of you. And if Larry can't come in on two legs, he can stay to home. Do you hear? The matter began to assume a graver aspect. The little Ruggleses stopped giggling, backed into the bedroom, issuing presently with lockstep Indian file, a scared and hunted expression on every countenance. No, 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 cried Mrs. Ruggles in despair. That's worse yet. You look for all the world like a gang of prisoners. There ain't no style to that. Spread out more, can't you, and act kind of careless like nobody's going to kill you. That ain't what a dinner party is. The third time brought deserved success and the pupils took their seats in a row. Now, now you know, said Mrs. Ruggles impressively. There ain't enough decent hats to go around. And if there was, I don't know as I'd let you wear them for the boys would never think to take them off when they got inside, for they never do. But anyhow, there ain't enough good ones. Now, look me in the eye. You're only going just around the corner. You needn't wear no hats, none of your. And when you get there into the parlor and they ask you to lay your hats, Sarah Maud must speak up and say it was such a pleasant evening and such a short walk that you left your hats to home. Now, can you remember? All the little ruggles had shouted, Yes, marm, in chorus. What have you got to do with it? Demanded their mother. Did I tell you to say it? Weren't I talking to Sarah Maud? The little Ruggleses hung their diminished heads. Yes, marm, they piped more discreetly. Now, 
We won't leave nothing to chance. Get up, all of you, and try it. Speak up, Sarah Maud. Sarah Maud's tongue clove to the roof of her mouth. Quick! Ma thought it was such a pleasant hat that we'd better leave our short walk to home, recited Sarah Maud in an agony of mental effort. This was too much for the boys. An earthquake of suppressed giggles swept all along the line. Oh, whatever shall I do with you? Moaned the unhappy mother. I suppose I've got to learn it here. Which she did, word for word, until Sarah Maud thought she could stand on her head and say it backwards. Now, Cornelius, what are you going to say to make yourself good company? Do? Me? Dunno, said Cornelius, turning pale with unexpected responsibility. Well, you ain't going to sit there like a bump on a log without saying a word to pay for your vittles, are ye? Ask Miss Bird how she's feeling this evening, or if Mr. Bird's having a busy season, or how this kind of weather agrees with him, or something like that. Now, we'll make believe we've got to the dinner and... That won't be so hard, because you'll have something to do. It's awful bothersome to stand round and act stylish. If they have napkins, Sarah Maud, down to Puri, may put them in their laps, and the rest of you can tuck them in your necks. Don't eat with your fingers. Don't grab no vittles off one another's plates. Don't reach out for nothing, but wait till you're asked. And if you never get asked, don't get up and grab it. Don't spill nothing on the tablecloth. Or like snap, Miss Birds will send your way from the table. And I hope she will if you do. Susan, keep your handkerchief in your lap where Peary can borrow it if she needs it. And I hope she'll know when she does need it, though I don't expect it. Now. We'll try a few things to see how they'll go. Mr. Clement, do you eat cranberry sauce? Bet your life, cried Clem, who in the excitement of the moment had not taken in the idea exactly and had mistaken this for an ordinary bosom of the family question. Clement McGrill Ruggles, do you mean to tell me that you'd say that to a dinner party? I'll give you one more chance. Mr. Clement, will you take some of the cranberry? Yes, marm. Thank ye kindly, if you happen to have any handy. Very good indeed. But they won't give you two tries tonight. You just remember that. Miss Puri, do you speak for white or dark meat? I ain't particular as to color. Anything that nobody else wants will suit me, answered Peori with her best air. First rate. Nobody could speak more genteel than that. Miss Kitty, will you have hard or soft sauce with your pudding? Hard or soft? Oh, a little of both, if you please, and I am so much obliged, said Kitty, bowing with decided ease and grace, at which... All the other Ruggleses pointed the finger of shame at her, and Peter grunted expressively that their meaning might not be mistaken. You just stop your grunting, Peter Ruggles. That weren't greedy. That was all right. I wish I could get it into your heads 
that it ain't so much what you see as the way you see it. And don't keep staring cross-eyed at your necktie pen or I'll take it out and sew it on to Clem or Cornelius. Sarah Maud will keep her eye on it and if it turns broken side out, she'll tell you. Gracious, I shouldn't think you'd ever seen or wore no jewelry in your life. Eilie, you and Larry's too little to train, so you just look at the rest and do as they do, and the Lord have mercy on you and help you to act decent. Now, is there anything more you'd like to practice? If you'd tell me one more thing, I can't set up and eat, said Peter gloomily. I'm so crammed full of manners now, I'm ready to bust without no dinner at all. Me too, chimed in Cornelius. Well, I'm sorry for you both, rejoined Mrs. Ruggles sarcastically. If the amount of manners you've got on hand now troubles ye, you're dreadful easy hurt. Now, Sarah Maud, after dinner, about once in so often, you must get up and say, I guess we'd better be going. And if they say, oh no, sit a while longer, you can sit. But if they don't say nothing, you've got to get up and go. Now, have you got that in your head? About once in so often, could any words in the language be fraught with more terrible and wearing uncertainty? Well, answered Sarah Maud mournfully, seems as if this whole dinner party set right square on top of me. Maybe I could manage my own manners, but to manage nine manners is, is worse than staying to home. Oh, don't fret, said her mother good-naturedly now that the lesson was over. I guess you'll get along. I wouldn't mind if folks would only say, oh, children will be children, but they won't. They'll say, land of oh goodness, who fetched them children up? It's quarter past five and you can go now. Remember about the hats? Don't all talk to once. Susan, lend your handkerchief to Peary. Peter, don't keep screwing your scarf pin. Cornelius, hold your head up straight. Sarah Maud, don't take your eyes off, Larry. And Larry, you keep hold of Sarah Maud and do just as she says. And whatever you do, all of you, never forget for one second that your mother was a McGrill. Chapter 6. When the pie was opened, the birds began to sing. The children went out the back door quietly and were presently lost to sight. Sarah Maud slipping and stumbling along absentmindedly as she repeated, reciting under her breath. It was such a pleasant evening and such a short walk that we thought we'd leave our hats at home. It was such a pleasant evening and such a short walk that we thought we'd leave our hats at home. It was such a pleasant evening and such a that we thought we'd leave our hats at home. Peter rang the doorbell, and presently a servant admitted them, and whispering something in Sarah's ear, drew her downstairs into the kitchen. The other Ruggles stood in horror-stricken groups as the door closed behind their commanding officer, but there was no time for reflection, for a voice was from above was heard, saying, "'Come right upstairs, please.' "'There's not to make reply. There's not to reason why. There's but to do.' or die. Accordingly, they walked upstairs, and Elfrida, 
the nurse ushered them into a room more splendid than anything they had ever seen. But oh, whoa, where was Sarah Maud? And was it fate that Mrs. Bird should say at once, did you lay your hats in the hall? And Peter felt himself elected by circumstance the head of the family and casting one imploring look at tongue-tied Susan standing next to him and said huskily, it was so very pleasant that 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 we hadn't good enough hats to go around, put in little Susan bravely to help him out, and then froze with horror that the ill-fated words had slipped off her tongue. However, Mrs. Bird said pleasantly, of course you wouldn't wear hats such a short distance. I forgot when I asked. Now, will you come right into Miss Carol's room? She is so anxious to see you. Just then, Sarah Maud came up from the back stairs, so radiant with joy from her secret interview with the cook that Peter could have pinched her with a clear conscience, and Carol gave a joyful welcome. But where is baby Larry? She cried, looking over the group with surging eyes. Didn't he come? Larry? Larry? Good gracious, where was Larry? They were all sure he had come in with them, for Susan remembered scolding him for tripping over the doormat. Uncle Jack went into convulsions of laughter. Are you sure there were nine of you? He asked merrily. I think so, sir, said Peora timidly. But anyhow, there was Larry, and she showed signs of weeping. Oh, well, well, cheer up, cried Uncle Jack. Probably he's not lost, only mislaid. I'll go and find him before you can say Jack Robinson. I'll go too, if you please, sir, said Sarah Maud, for it was my place to mind him, and if he is lost, I can't relish my vittles. And the other ruggles stood rooted to the floor. Was this a dinner party, forsooth? And if so, why were such things ever spoken of as festive occasions? Sarah Maud went out through the hall calling, Larry, Larry, and without any interval of suspense, a thin voice piped up from below. Here I be! The truth was that Larry, being deserted by his natural guardian, dropped behind the rest and wriggled into the hat tree to wait for her, having no notion of walking unprotected into the jaws of a fashionable entertainment. Finding that she did not come, he tried to call from his refuge and call somebody when dark and dreadful ending to a tragic day, he found that he was too much intertwined with umbrellas and canes to move a single step. He was afraid to yell. When I have said this of Larry Ruggles, I have pictured a state of helpless terror that ought to wring tears from every eye. And the sound of Sarah Maud's beloved voice some seconds later was like a strain of angel music in his ears. Uncle Jack dried his tears, carried him upstairs, and soon had him in breathless fits of laughter, while Carol so made the other Ruggles forget themselves that they were presently talking like accomplished diners out. Carol's bed had been moved into the farthest corner of the room, and she was lying on the outside dressed in a wonderful dressing gown that looked like a fleecy cloud. Her golden hair fell in fluffy curls over her white forehead and neck. Her cheeks flushed delicately. Her eyes beamed with joy. And the children told their mother afterwards that she looked as beautiful as the angels in the picture books. There was a great bustle behind a huge screen in another part of the room, and at half past five, this was taken away, and the Christmas dinner table stood revealed. What a wonderful sight it was to the poor little Ruggles children who ate their sometimes scanty meals 
on the kitchen table. It blazed with tall colored candles. It gleamed with glass and silver. It blushed with flowers. It groaned with good things to eat. So it was not strange that the Ruggleses, forgetting altogether that their mother was a McGrill, shrieked in admiration of the fairy spectacle. But Larry's behavior was the most disgraceful. For he stood not upon the order of his going, but went at once for a high chair that pointed unmistakably to him, climbed up like a squirrel, gave a comprehensive look at the turkey, clapped his hands in ecstasy, rested his fat arms on the table, and cried with joy, I beat the whole lot of you! Carol laughed until she cried, giving orders meanwhile. Uncle Jack, Please sit at the head, Sarah Maud at the foot, and that will leave four on each side. Mama is going to help Elfrida so that the children need not look after each other, but just have a good time. A sprig of holly lay by each plate, and nothing would do but each little Ruggles must leave his seat and have it pinned on by Carol. And as each course was served, one of them pleaded to take something to her. There was hurrying to and fro, I can assure you, for it is quite a difficult matter to serve a Christmas dinner on the third floor of a great city house. But if it had been necessary to carry every dish up on a rope ladder, the servants would gladly have done so. There were turkey and chicken with delicious gravy and stuffing. There were half a dozen vegetables with cranberry jelly and celery and pickles. And as for the way these delicacies were served, the Ruggles never forgot it as long as they lived. Peter nudged Kitty, who sat next to him, and said, Look, will yer? Every feller's got his own particular butter. I suppose that's to show you you can eat that no more. No, it ain't either, for that pig of Peori just getting another helping. Yes, whispered Kitty, and the napkins is marked with big red letters. I wonder if that's so nobody will nip them. Oh, Peter! Look at the picture sticking onto the dishes. Did you ever? The plum is all took out of my cranberry sauce and it's frizzed to a stiff gel, whispered Peoria in wild excitement. Hiya, I got a wishbone, sang Larry, regardless of Sarah Maud's frown, after which she asked to have his seat changed, giving his excuse that he generally sits beside her and would feel strange, the true reason being that she desired to kick him gently under the table whenever he passed what might be termed the McGrill line. I declare to goodness, murmured Susan on the other side, there's so much to look at, I can't scarcely eat nothing. Bet your life I can, said Peter, who had kept one servant busily employed ever since he sat down, for luckily... No one was asked by Uncle Jack whether he would have a second helping, but the dishes were quietly passed under their noses and not a single Ruggles refused anything that was offered him, even unto the seventh time. Then, when Carol and Uncle Jack perceived that more turkey was a physical impossibility, the meats were taken off and the dessert was brought in, a dessert that would have frightened a strong man after such a dinner as had preceded it. Not so the Ruggleses, for a strong man is nothing to a small, hungry boy. And they kindled to the dessert as if the turkey had been a dream and the six vegetables an optical delusion. 
There were plum puddings, mince pies, ice cream. There were nuts and raisins and oranges. Kitty chose ice cream, explaining that she knew it by sight, though she hadn't never tasted none. But all the rest took the entire variety without any regard to consequences. My dear child, whispered Uncle Jack as he took Carol an orange, there is no doubt about the necessity of this feast. But I do advise you after this to have them twice a year or quarterly, perhaps, for the way these children eat is positively dangerous. I assure you, I tremble for that terrible Peoria. I'm going to run races with her after dinner. Never mind, laughed Carol. Let them have enough for once. It does my heart good to see them, and they shall come more often next year. The feast being over, the Ruggleses lay back in their chairs languidly like little gorged boa constrictors, and the table was cleared in a trice. Then a door was opened into the next room, and there in a corner facing Carol's bed, which had been wheeled as close as possible, stood the brilliantly lighted Christmas tree, glittering with gilded walnuts and tiny silver balloons wreathed with snowy chains of popcorn. The presents had been bought mostly with Carol's story money and were selected after long consultations with Mrs. Bird. Each girl had a blue knitted hood and each boy a red crocheted comforter, all made by Mama, Carol, and Elfrida. Because if you buy everything, it doesn't show so much love, said Carol. Then every girl had a pretty plaid dress of a different color and every boy a warm coat of the right size. And here the useful presents stopped and they were quite enough. But Carol had pleaded to give them something for fun. I know they need clothes, she had said when they were talking over the matter just after Thanksgiving, but they don't care much for them after all. Now, Papa, won't you please let me go without part of my presents this year and give me the money they would cost to buy something to amuse the Ruggleses? You can have both, said Mr. Bird promptly. Is there any need of my little girl's going without her own Christmas? I should like to know. Spend all the money you like. But that isn't the thing, objected Carol, nestling close to her father. It wouldn't be mine. What is the use? Haven't I almost everything already? Am I, am I not the happiest girl in the world this year with Uncle Jack? And Donald at home, you know very well, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So why won't you let me do it? You never look half as happy when you are getting your presents as when you are giving us ours. Now, Papa, submit, or I shall have to be very firm and disagreeable with you. Very well, your highness, I surrender. That is a dear Papa. Now, what were you gonna give me? Confess. A bronze figure of Santa Claus and in the little round belly that shakes when he laughs like a bowl full of jelly is a clock. Oh, you would never give it up if you could see it. Nonsense, laughed Carol, as I never have to get up to breakfast, nor go to bed, nor catch trains. I think my old clock will do me very well. Now, Mama, what were you going to give me? Oh, I hadn't decided. A few more books and a gold thimble and a smelling bottle and a music box, perhaps. Poor Carol, laughed the child merrily. She can afford to give up these lovely things, for there will still be left Uncle Jack and Donald and Paul and Hugh and Uncle Rob and Aunt Elsie and a dozen other people to fill her Christmas stocking. So Carol had her way, as she generally did. But it was 
usually a good way, which was fortunate under the circumstances. And Sarah Maud had a set of Miss Alcott's books, and Peter, a modest silver watch, Cornelius, a tool chest, Clement, a doghouse for his lame puppy, Larry, a magnificent Noah's Ark, and each of the younger girls, a beautiful doll. You can well believe that everybody was very merry and very thankful. All the family, from Mr. Bird down to the cook, said that they had never seen so much happiness in the space of three hours. But it had to end, as all things do. The candles flickered and went out. The tree was left alone with its gilded ornaments. And Mrs. Bird sent the children downstairs at half past eight, thinking that Carol looked tired. Now, my darling, you have done quite enough for one day, said Mrs. Bird, getting Carol into her little nightgown. I'm afraid you will feel worse tomorrow, and that would be a sad ending to such a charming evening. Oh, wasn't it a lovely, lovely time, sighed Carol, from first to last. Everything was just right. I shall never forget Larry's face when he looked at the turkey. Nor Peter's when he saw his watch, nor that sweet, sweet kitty's smile when she kissed her dolly, nor the tears in poor dull Sarah Maud's eyes when she thanked me for her books, nor, but we mustn't talk any longer about it tonight, said Mrs. Bird anxiously. You are tired, dear. I am not so very tired, Mama. I have felt well all day and not a bit of pain anywhere. Perhaps tonight has done me good. Well, perhaps, I hope so. There was no noise or confusion. It was just a merry time. Now, may I close the door and leave you alone, dear? Papa and I will steal in softly by and by to see if you are all right. But I think you need to be very quiet. Oh, I'm willing to stay by myself but I am not sleepy yet, and I'm going to hear the music, you know. Yes, I have opened the window a little, and I put the screen in front of it so that you won't feel the air. Can I have the shutters open, and won't you turn my bed, please? This morning, I woke ever so early, and one bright, beautiful star shone in that eastern window. I never noticed it before, and I thought of the star in the east that guided the wise men to the place where the baby Jesus was. Good night, Mama. Such a happy, happy day. Good night, my precious Christmas carol, mother's blessed Christmas child. Bend your head a minute, mother dear, whispered Carol, calling her mother back. Mama dear, I do think that we have kept Christ's birthday this time just as he would like it. Don't you? I am sure of it, said Mrs. Bird softly. Chapter 7, The Birdling Flies Away. The Ruggleses had finished a last romp in the library with Paul and Hugh, and Uncle Jack had taken them home and stayed a while to chat with Mrs. Ruggles, who opened the door for them, all her face all aglow with excitement and delight. When Kitty and Clem showed her the orange and nuts that they had kept for her, 
she astonished them by saying that at six o'clock, Mrs. Bird had sent her in the finest dinner she had ever seen in her life. And not only that, but a piece of dress goods that must have cost a dollar a yard if it cost a cent. As Uncle Jack went down the rickety steps, he looked back into the window for a last glimpse of the family. And as the children gathered about their mothers, showing their beautiful presence again and again, and then upwards to a window in the great house yonder, a little child shall lead them, he thought. If, if anything ever happens to Carol, I will take the Ruggleses under my wing. Softly, Uncle Jack whispered the boys as he walked into the library a short while later. We are listening to the music in the church. The choir has sung Carol Brothers Carol, and now we think the organist is beginning to play My Ain Country for Carol. I hope she hears it, said Mrs. Bird, but they are very late tonight, and I dare not speak to her lest she should be asleep. It is almost 10 o'clock. And the boy soprano, clad in white surplice, stood in the organ loft. The light shone full upon his crown of fair hair, and his pale face, with its serious blue eyes, looked paler than usual. Perhaps it was something in the tender thrill of the voice or in the sweet words. But there were tears in many eyes, both in the church and in the great house next door. I am far from my home. I am weary after whiles for the longed-for home-bringing and my father's welcome smiles. And I'll never be full content until my own do see the golden gates of heaven in my own country. The earth is decked with flowers, more tinted, fresh, and gay, and the birdies warble blithely, for my father made them say. But these sights and these sounds will be as nothing to me when I hear the angels singing in my own country. Like a barn to its mother, a wee birdie to its nest, I fain would be going to, unto my father's breast. For he gathers in his arms helpless, worthless lambs like me, and carries them himself to his own country. There were tears in many eyes, but not in carols. The loving heart had quietly ceased to beat. And the wee birdie in the great house had flown to its home nest. Carol had fallen asleep. But as to the song, I think perhaps, I cannot say, she heard it after all. So sad an ending to a happy day, perhaps to those who were left. And yet Carol's mother, even in the freshness of her grief, was glad that her darling had slipped away on the loveliest day of her life, out of its glad content into everlasting peace. She was glad that she had gone as she had come on the wings of a song, when all the world was brimming over with joy, glad of every grateful smile, of every joyous burst of laughter, of every loving thought and word and deed the dear last day had brought. Sadness reigned, it is true, in the little house behind the garden. And one day, poor Sarah Maud, with the courage born of despair, threw on her hood and shawl and walked straight to a certain house a mile away, up the marble steps into good Dr. Bartle's office, 
falling at his feet as she cried. Oh, sir, it was me and our children that went to Miss Carol's last dinner party. And if we made her worse, we can't never be happy again. And then the kind old gentleman took her rough hand in his, told her to dry her tears. For neither she nor any of her flock had hastened Carol's flight. Indeed, he said that had it not been for the strong hopes and wishes that filled her tired heart, she could not have stayed long enough to keep that last Merry Christmas with her dear ones. And so the old years, fraught with memories, die one after another, and the new years, bright with hope, are born to take their places. But Carol lives again in every chime of Christmas bells that peal glad tidings, and in every Christmas anthem sung by childish voices. The end. And that ends one of my very favorite Christmas stories. I hope you it, is, it has brought you as much joy as it has brought me. Okay, sweet dreams. And may your dreams be merry and bright. <laughs>